So I'm going to warn you that I'm about to make you uncomfortable with my opening story. But when I was, uh, the church that I grew up uh, in going to college in, I had a very large sanctuary that ended up being the perfect venue for traveling Christian bands that were coming through town. Uh, and they loved to perform there. And one of the great things about being a college student working in the youth department was we often got a chance to, to work crew for the concerts. And, uh, you know, we had all kinds of big Christian names. We, we did Stephen Curtis Chapman and uh, Michael Card at a time. The Imperials came through. We even had Carmen, his big <laughs> concert show, for those of you that remember that kind of thing. We also had a band that went by the name of DeGarmo and Key. Uh, DeGarmo and Key was a Memphis-based Christian band made up of Ed DeGarmo uh, and Dana Key. And they did this great rock show uh, that sort of was enhanced by their Christian testimonies. And you know, as a crew member working these things, you know, we, the, the headliners would oftentimes come out uh, and shake the hands of the free labor uh, just to sort of say thank you to them for working the show, right? And, you know, of course, after that would happen, we'd all kind of walk away high-fiving each other, being like, Dana Key shook my hand, right? Well, about a year after that concert, I was in my favorite music store. Uh, and as I walked in, I saw the owner behind the desk. I knew him because I was a frequent visitor there having a conversation with someone that I did not recognize. But as I started sort of flipping through the stacks of CDs at that time, I began to eavesdrop on them and realize they were talking about Christian music. And I heard the guy who the owner was talking to say, do you think that Christian music would sell in your store? Well, the man, the owner of the store, you know, who he was talking to, saw me listening in and looked over at me and said, I don't know, hey, you buy Christian music, don't you? Uh, to which you know, I kind of nodded at him. And he said, well, have you ever, <laughs> have you ever heard of the band DeGarmo and Key? Okay, so do you know those, uh, do you know those moments where you, know, you ever so slightly embellish the truth to kind of put yourself in a really, a really positive light? I uncorked this little winner right here. Well, you know. I know Dana Key personally, at which time the man standing at the counter spins around and says, I'm Dana Key. I told you I'd make you feel uncomfortable, didn't I? See, look, there's retching going on. I warned you, you were warned. I absolutely withered in front of this guy because I was busted, but I learned a lesson in that moment. And it's simply this, do not take someone's name on your lips unless you can back that relationship up with reality. That was the story. And our culture actually still, I think, understands this. We have a lot of laws that protect people from using someone else's name in a way that's not worthy. We've got copyright laws, we've got libel laws, slander, forgery laws. What are they saying? They're all saying if you drop someone's name, you better be able to back it up with reality. Let's take an example. For example, let's say that I decide to go into the new Oxford Pharmacy right there at North Lamar, across from Handy Andy, uh, and I say to CPC member Mary John White, who owns that cute little pharmacy, and I say, hey, Mary John, um, <clears throat> the doctor said that I can have this medicine, uh, but I don't have a prescription for it. What's she going to say? Now, she may be a dear friend of mine. She may even trust me, but she's going to call my doctor and check up on that because she's a good pharmacist. She's going to make sure that, that my word is backed up with reality. 
Because if you don't have that, your society begins to crumble. You lose faith, or at least you get horribly embarrassed like I did. And why is that the case? I think the reason for it is, is because you really don't have a relationship without respect. You ever thought about that? You can't know a person until you're willing to turn your regard, your attention, your imagination towards them, which as it turns out is exactly what the word respect means. It comes from a Latin word meaning to look at. We say sometimes when we're talking through difficult situations, hey, I see you. I see you. What are we saying? We're saying, I respect you. And so Yahweh comes to this just recently freed people to say, I want a relationship with you that the Egyptian gods were not even capable of. And it's going to be entailed by respect. So we can't take his name. We're going to talk about what that means in just a second without backing it up with reality. Because God is saying, I'm going to bind up my reputation in yours. Your character with mine. And so if we're going to have a real relationship, you've got to respect me. Think about the flow of it. The first commandment says, this relationship needs to be exclusive between you and me. The second commandment says, how we are to relate. And now the third says, you're going to continue this relationship and keep it healthy if you respect me and you avoid being a hypocrite. And those are actually my two main points this morning. How we respect God in the third commandment and how we avoid hypocrisy. And then my third little point, <laughs> which I promise you you'll appreciate by the time we get to it, is entitled Hope for Disrespectful Hypocrites, like me. Okay, so let's take that first idea, respect. I want to call respect giving weight to God. Why? Well, because you've got to understand that as we unpack all of these commands, there's both a negative and a positive thrust to each of them. Have you recognized this? The, the commandments are mostly phrased in negative ways. In other words, it says, you shall not do such and such. But implied in that command is the opposite. You shall do such and such. And so therefore, negatively, it says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But positively, you are to show him the respect that he is due. Okay, but what does that mean? Let's kind of unpack it. First of all, let's figure out what it means to take a name. And I think the best place to start is in Proverbs 22, verse 1, where, where the writer says this, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. You understand that in a Jewish person's mind, a name is not just a, a designation point. Uh, a name is really a, a reputation. Your name was the sum total of your character. It was everything that you're about. And so all through the Old Testament, you see these constant references where God is called upon to act, quote, for the sake of his name. I found just a few of them. 1 Samuel 12, 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. How about the famous Psalm 23, verse 3? He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness, you guessed it, for his name's sake. Ezekiel 20, verse 9. But I acted, says God, for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned among the nations. You see God's logic. He's saying to take the name by embracing the Ten Commandments is really primarily by seeing them as a revelation of God. God is telling you what he is like. 
He's telling you his nature. He's telling you what makes him tick. Because these people have been enslaved for 400 years. They have no idea what he's like. They are scarred with Egyptian idolatry. And so God is saying, look, my name is the sum total of the character of who I am. It's a way of speaking about who I am. So when the temple gets built by Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 10, God says that that temple will be a house for my name. What does he mean? When you look at that temple, the very layout is going to talk about the sum of my character. You want to know about me? Take a look at this, at this temple. And so when Yahweh tells his people, don't take my name in a worthless way, he's saying, don't embrace a relationship with me that doesn't acknowledge who I really am. If you're going to follow me, you can't be about the things that are not true of me. Your mission, as it were, is to, to protect my reputation in the world. So the question comes, well, how do we do that? Well, I love the way in which I heard one theologian put it. It means that we have to give weight to God. To take him seriously. Why do I use that phrase? Well, there was, there was a theologian who worked, I think, at Gordon-Conwell Seminary years ago who wrote a book called God in the Wasteland. His name is David Wells. He said this in his book. He says, one of the defining marks of our time is that God is now weightless. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to be not noticeable. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. What's he saying? God has no weight. He doesn't phase us anymore. God can't unsettle us. Upturn the cart of our lives to pause and consider him. He is inconsequential, as he said. And you can see his, his lack of weight manifesting itself in lots of ways, can't we? The most obvious of which, I would argue, is in blasphemy. This one's kind of the obvious one, right? You know, God's name, used as a curse word, shows how little you think of him. You know, Christians have to bear his reputation. So what does it say when we dare allow his name to sort of fly off our lips flippantly like that? Which is funny. I used to have students would protest me being like, oh, okay, okay, less. Um, truth is, I didn't mean what I said, right? Uh, it just slipped out. Right? It wasn't like I thought about it or anything. <laughs> But don't you realize that's exactly what the command is talking about? Like, how is it possible to sort of know this great God and all of this majesty that we talked about him having in our call to worship this morning and let his name fly out in a thoughtless or, or careless way? Well, the truth of the matter is he's saying you can't because you're not actually in a relationship with me when that happens. In other words, to use the Lord's name is to show it's really in my heart that he doesn't matter to me. One theologian says the Lord forbids us to speak as if he doesn't matter. That's what's forbidden. But I do think that like cussing, that's a little bit beyond some of the socially refined, more of us here in this room. My guess though is that there's still sort of phrases that circulate on us that we use just as thoughtlessly. I mean, even among religious people, we'll throw around things like, oh my God. Or, well, good Lord. 
Or maybe in a moment, Jesus, it's blasphemy. (laughs) It's a violation of the third commandment. Why? Because we allow them to come out so flippantly means we think so little of it with his name. (laughs) Theologian Michael Scott Horton actually even says that we do damage to his name when we attach God's name to our, to our religious silliness. And, and he talks about how, how, how silly it is when we sort of put God's name on religious t-shirts. <laughs> he says, like, bearing such slogans as, this blood's for you, a takeoff on the this bud's for you TV commercial. It's supposed to be funny. You can laugh at that. That's okay. Whenever we cheapen God's name, he says, by vain repetition, irreverent sloganeering, or by actual cursing, we engage in a violation of the third commandment. We take his name seriously. It has weight to us. And so we're in an election season. It seems like we have to remind ourselves again whether or not it is wise to attach God's name to one or the other political party. I've seen memes on Facebook and elsewhere, and yes, I know that it was put together by some Russian troll. But they're slapping slogans for their political party on pictures of Jesus. It's a violation of the third commandment. We cannot entangle God's reputation up in our worldly pursuits where he has not made it explicit. It's a violation. I go further. I think it also means that we've got to be very careful about using God's name when we attach his name to something that we're not certain that he said. I realize it's very religious sounding, especially in Christian circles, to drop phrases like, well, you know, God told me to dot, dot, dot. Or, yeah, I just really know that God is telling me to dot, dot, dot. Or better yet, the Lord made it as clear as day to me that I should fill in the blank. I don't think a semester went by when I was on campus with RUF when a student wouldn't come in and say, you know, Les, the Lord told me to come and tell you something today. And I would always say the same thing to him. It's like, hey, if it's okay, I'm going to master the contents of the Bible first, and then I'll get to the stuff that he's telling you. Because we know that he spoke those words. You see why? It's because it's impossible for me to delineate between what God is telling me versus what I just want to be true inside my own head. (laughs) I I used to love it when guys would come and and tell their girlfriends, you know, I just really feel like the Lord is telling us to break up. Not a whole lot of place for the girl to go at that point, is, is there? No, actually, I disagree with God. I don't think we're supposed to break up. Actually, what I would tell the girls to say was, I would say, look, just look at him and say, that is so weird. He told me we should stay together. <laughs> you got the same right to that name, don't we? And so Jesus is saying, just don't do it at all. Colin Smith in his, in his book, The Ten Greatest Struggles of Your Life, says, God takes it personally when we, we misuse his name, just like you would take it personally which is why he attaches that ending to it when he says, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Whoosh. Matthew 12, 30, Jesus attaches some fairly unsettling threats to those who, quote, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, even going so far as to say that that's unforgivable. Look, I don't have time to go into the theology behind that, but simply think of it this way. If you're in a marriage where that person had no respect for you, 
who, who constantly took you for granted, who would hardly even give you the time of day, you would seek out counseling for that relationship. If you were dating that person, college students, you would break up with them. And it's as if God is saying in this third commandment, I'm going to, exp- to attach this, this, this promise to it so that you know that if you're going to try to relate to me in that way, you're just mistaken because you can't. So what we find is, is this first point is there's a respect in giving God weight. But secondly, we find that there's a, a negative side to that, and that is being hypocritical. I think the negative expression of the third commandment is best found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and following, where Jesus kind of unpacks the anatomy of hypocrisy, if you will. Listen to what he says. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I saw one commentator who said there's there's three aspects to hypocrisy that you need to be aware of. Number one, these people were orthodox. They believed right things. They used the name Lord for Jesus at that time. Well, that's actually his Old Testament covenant name. So they believe right things. They've got all the right answers. But in the end... There's no spiritual reality. That their thoughts about God are just data points. Secondly, you'll notice also, these people kind of had some emotional religious experiences. You see this by the, by the repeated word, Lord. Uh, I heard one preacher put it this way. A lot of times when we're writing, if you want to emphasize something someone says and you're typing it, what do you do? You put it in italics, right? That emphasizes that word. Well, the Bible's way of italics is by repeating the word. Lord, Lord, shows that there's emotion behind it. Do you remember when King David had that little coup d'etat attempt from his own son? And in the midst of it, his son dies. And he cries out, Absalom, Absalom. What does he mean? There's passion that's behind it. In other words, these people that Jesus is talking about, they actually have some emotional experience of their own regret. Maybe during their lifetimes, they were enthusiastic. Maybe even singing songs to Jesus with tears in their eyes. But because there was no spiritual reality behind it, Jesus says, I didn't know you. Third thing is, is notice that these hypocrites are fairly religiously active. I mean, look at all the stuff they've done. They were teachers of the word. They were preachers. I I don't get out from under this. They saw fruit in their ministries. People were coming to faith and repenting through their influence. And yet through all this activity, Jesus says, no, I never knew you. Now, mind you, Jesus is not talking about awareness. He doesn't get surprised and be like, wait a minute, you're not on the list of humans. What he's saying is, is there was no mutuality. You know, a broken marriage will oftentimes say things like this. You know, she just never knew me. He never gave me the chance. And in Matthew 7, Jesus is saying, I want to have a marriage with you. I don't want to date you. I want this to actually be us sharing life together. Anything else is taking my name in vain. And I won't hold you guiltless if you do that. Okay, so how are you doing? I'm doing horribly. So let's go to the third point. Is there hope for disrespectful hypocrites? I think there is. Because if you really are listening, you can tell that any act of disobedience 
is a violation of the third commandment, is it not? Any act. So if you're not uncomfortable right now, you're not paying attention. So here's my last question. What kind of a cure do you apply for, do you, do you apply for this? Because I think it's naive to say something like, well, you know what, you're right, Les. From here on out, I'm going to take God seriously. You know, like religious transformation is like a New Year's resolution or something. How do you do that? You can't make yourself do it. It sounds lame to me. It sounds just as lame as the man who looks at his wife and says, oh, you know what, I'll do better next time. When both of you know that the problem is much deeper than that. Actually, let me phrase the question in a different way. How do you eat away at the weightlessness of God inside your own heart? Can I offer a suggestion? I think you do so by growing in the knowledge that on the cross, Jesus took you seriously. That if the cross means anything, it means that you matter to him supremely. And I think that's the only way in which you give weight to the ones that you, that, that you have in your life. You give weight to the people in your life because they gave weight to you. That's the exchange. The hymn writer kind of comes along and says that when trials come and hardships happen, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. See what he's saying? He's saying in those moments, I begin to work through the discovery of my own shortcomings by rehearsing how God has been faithful to me in the past. Tell me the story again. You know where you see this is in Psalm 77. Uh, Psalm 77 is a great psalm for the people that can't sleep at night because of what's going on in your head. It's a great psalm because the psalmist, as he writes it, can't sleep at night. But by the time he gets to verse 10, he's worked out what he's going to do. Listen to what he says. He says, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I'll ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Don't you see what he's saying? The psalmist understands that it is only how, how, how you grasp as you grasp how much God matters to you, that you will matter to him. That exchange has to happen. When I begin to give weight to him, I respect him. I begin to replace the places in my heart with reality. Maybe this is one of the reasons why we struggle and fail with our own hypocrisy. My good friend Brian Habig used a wonderful illustration about a World War II pilot who went down in German-occupied France and died in his, uh, in his uh, attempt, just outside of a French village called Levant. His name was Billy Harris. And after his death for years, his widow, whose name was Peggy, had no idea what happened to him. She only knew that he died and that the circumstances surrounding his death were really mysterious. But Peggy couldn't bring herself to remarry. She would remain a widow for the rest of her life, but she kept looking for her husband. She would send letters to her congressman appealing to them for action. Until 60 years later, in 2005, Peggy's cousin, a guy named Alton Harvey, decided he would take up the case and investigate it. And what he found astounded him. Because what he found out was that during that day, there was an eyewitness in the village when Billy's plane went down that said that as he began to come and crash, that he could see that he would have crashed dead in the center of the village, killing an untold number of the villagers. 
But the eyewitness said he saw Billy purposely bank the plane as it was going down to miss the village and crash just on the outskirts. And the story began to be told. So much so, I was actually watching a YouTube report on this. It's amazing that they built an entire monument to Billy D. Harris. And around the monument, they get around every year, a couple of times a year, and they put flowers on the monument so they can remember what he did. All the way up to his, and so 70 years later, Peggy, having no idea that there's a place in France, in Levant, who, guess what the main thoroughfare through the town is called? Place de Billy Harris. And they gather around three times a year. The mayor, as she reads through the names of the war dead, can't even keep from holding back tears when she gets to Billy's name. And now every year after that, until her death, Peggy went and returned to see the celebration that had been going on when she didn't even know it. That's a great story. (laughs) But think for a moment, if an older person saw a young person speaking sort of flippantly about the name of Billy D. Harris. What do you think that old person would have said? Hey, 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 silent now. That's against the rules for us to talk that way. That's not what he would have said. He would have said, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, don't talk that way. Don't you know what Billy Harris did for us? Hey, come here, come here. Sit down and let me tell you the story one more time of how he saved us, of how he, how he swerved, how he gave his own life to save all of us. We probably wouldn't even be here without him. One theologian put it this way. He said, as the living name, Jesus bears the full weight of the Father's name. He bears it until it crushes him and it renders him nameless. Jesus suffers our indifference and hypocrisy all the way to the cross so that the Father raises him and gives him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus all knees should bow. The living name goes silent so that the nations would one day proclaim the name of the Lord. Hey, think about it. In just a minute or two, I'm going to pronounce after our song a benediction. It's from the Latin that means a good word. But what every Christian realizes is the only reason why we can finish a service with a benediction It's because so many years ago there was a malediction, an evil word. And that word went like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God's people do not take his name in vain because they know the answer to that question Jesus asked. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Answer, so that I will never forsake all of the disrespectful hypocrites who come to me in repentance. That sounds like an invitation to me. Let's pray. And Father, would you give us the grace to come to you this morning that we might take the name. And Father, whatever sort of hypocrisies we notice inside our own hearts right now, to notice our hypocrisy means that we're not fully there. And so Father, the fact that we've noticed it, we ask that you would bring us to a a godly sorrow for it that we might be those who bear your name well in this community, that we might be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. Would that we would be known in this community as just such a place. But Father, that won't happen unless you intervene. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.